For, for the devotion today, one of the things that I started working on, and I guess I didn't expect to maybe have to live this out quite to the extent that uh, I started when I started writing a few weeks ago, um, but it's it's been kind of a, um, a good reminder to me as I work through this. It's kind of a, almost a, God does this so many times, as he works, he prepares us for what's coming, and we really don't realize what he's doing for us. And, and so what, what I'm going to do here today is I'm going to title this, um, Do the Next Thing. And we'll start here is, I think we're all really familiar with the miracles of Jesus. And if my count is right, there's 37 unique miracles in the Gospels. Although that number could be challenged a bit depending on how you read the different Gospels and whether or not um, some of the situations are actually duplicates or if they're different situations. Um, so I mean, you may come up with a little, a little different number. But... Nominally, there's there's close to 40 uh, unique miracles there. And um, we also know, though, that the counts that are written there only record really a small, or represent a small number of the things that were done by the Savior. Uh, John makes this comment in his closing gospel in John 21, uh, verse 25. He said, and there are many other things which Jesus did, which, if they should be written every one, I suppose even the world itself cannot contain the books that should be written. Um, each of these miracles that were recorded were written down, and they serve a specific purpose. Um, they didn't; they weren't performed randomly. Um, they were accompanied either by a message, or they met some serious human need. Um, maybe they confirmed Christ's identity or his authority as the Son of God. And at times, um, we find Jesus even refused to perform miracles because they they didn't fall into these categories. You know, as an example, if you think about when Herod, when he came before Herod. You know, it said Herod wanted to see him because he wanted to see this miracle. He'd been looking for this for a long season, and because he heard all these things and hoped to see a miracle, and Jesus just answered nothing. He was just silent because it didn't fit um, that the way that he had been working. Um, so what we see in the New Testament, there's really three things that happen. He did something to show his power. There was a sign um, that you know, figuratively maybe represented something else, and it was maybe a wonderful act. Um, and sometimes Jesus called him the Father and performing the miracles, and other times he just acted on his own authority. He just revealed he was um, his own identity and that he was part of the Trinity. So not only do these miracles serve a purpose, but on most of them, 32 of the 37 that I counted, he gave simple instructions to those who had been affected by the, by the miracle. Um, the commands weren't some hard act to perform, or they weren't meant as a way to try to go repay him or earn his, um, his reward for, for having done this. Um, in a way, we can almost think about that Jesus was teaching us, teaching disciples in that time, um, to accept the power of God in their lives, the way God had worked, and then continue on by, by doing what? By doing the next thing. Um, I don't know how many times you find yourself struggling with a situation that's way out of control, and then the Lord shows up and he alters that situation. Maybe it's a business that's saved from bankruptcy or unpaid bills that were met. And even in cases where the situation isn't completely rectified, we somehow just felt this unexplainable peace. But after that initial flood of thanksgiving or that thankfulness that seemed to kind of permeate our body, what did we do? Do we wait for something else to happen? Or maybe we're in that situation now and we're just asking ourselves, well, what do I do next? Um, because we, you know, kind of frame are in a place right now where we're going through this medical journey, uh, the story of Jarius is the one I'm going to pull out here this morning, kind of holds a special place. And we find this in Luke uh, chapter 8, uh, verses 40, 40 to 42, and then 
49-56. I'm just going to summarize the story. I'm not going to take the time to read it. But we know that Darius' daughter was dying, and he came in and fell at Jesus' feet. From the context of that story, um, what we learned is there were lots of people present. But we can imagine that he sort of had to fight his way through the crowd and to get to the, to the front to gain attention of Jesus. And I don't know, it sometimes for me feels like we need to fight to reach the Father. It, it wasn't that Jesus was trying to avoid Darius. We don't get that context at all, but there were things around. There was chaos around Darius in his life that he had to get through, all that crowd of oppressive people. And I can relate a little bit because I would say in the last 10 days, um, it's probably been the most challenging time of my life to pray. Because every time I kneel down and try to pray, there is something else. There's either, you know, all of a sudden a message from a doctor or something else shows up or, you know, you got these apps on your phone that, that hold all the medical information. You, you'll get a notice or somebody's texting you or, I mean, it, it's just a flood of things that tend to come in and consume us and not allow us to really quiet and, and get to a place to pray. So not, I don't think God's been distant. In fact, I know he's been walking with us. But we have to push that chaos aside in order to come to him. Now, it seems that's what Jorias was going through here, in, really, in a physical sense. And then, no sooner did he made that request, he got there and it's like, oh, I've reached my goal. I'm, I'm able to get Jesus' attention, and he's listening. And then he was rudely interrupted by this woman that had a disease. And we aren't, we aren't told what went through Jorias' mind, but as a father, the things that go through my mind is, well, um, my daughter's dying. This woman's been sick for years. She can wait a few minutes. Or, um, you know, my daughter, she's, she's young. She has so much potential. Let's let's go heal her. And this is an older woman. It's not that she's her, her life isn't valuable, but, I mean, look at what we can do with my daughter. And as, as Darius must be trying to drag the Savior away, Jesus stops and he heals the woman. And at about that moment, these crushing words come that, well, don't bother him anymore. Your daughter's dead. And we see that Darius doesn't even respond. He doesn't get that chance. Jesus just steps in. He meets the need. Maybe not in the way Darius wanted or even expected, but he just simply said, you're not. You're not. She's going to be okay. She's going to be whole. When Jesus got to the house, we know everyone was weeping. They believed hope was lost. And Jesus you know, makes this classic statement that we all remember. He said, well, she's just sleeping, and everybody laughed at him. And so he put them out. Um, he commanded, his next words were to tell her to rise, and then Jesus turns to her parents, and the next words were, go make lunch. You know, this just common phrase, and, you know, they weren't supposed to go to the synagogue and hold a prayer meeting. They didn't need to go run out and gather all their friends, show them what had happened. He didn't even chastise them for not believing. He just simply said, feed her. And again, we're, we're not designed to take on the whole world. I think that's what Jesus is teaching us. Sometimes we go... In an effort, we, we try to further the gospel that puts us outside of God's will. Maybe not on purpose, but it's because we, we try to do more than what we've been designed to do. Do more than we've been designed to carry. So don't misunderstand here. If God's expecting you to move your family to the Caribbean to be a missionary, don't use what I'm saying here as the excuse not to go. What I'm saying is do the next logical thing, the next right thing in your life. So the question for me always is, well, how do I do this? How do I go about deciding or discerning what that next right thing is. And there's a poem that, that is attributed to Elizabeth Elliot. I don't think she wrote it. Um, I think she's kind of, she, she either rewrote it or did, did something along the line, but it's attributed to her. And it's called Do the Next Thing. Um, 
And it goes like this. It says, from an old English parsonage down by the sea, there came in the twilight a message for me. It's quaint Saxon legend, deeply engraven. It seems, it has seems to me God's teaching from heaven. And on the hours, the quiet words ring like a low inspiration, do the next thing. Many a questioning, many a fear, many a doubt has quieting here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow's child of the king, trust them to Jesus. Do the next thing. Do it immediately, do it with prayer, do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing Christ's hand, who placed it before you with earnest command. State on his omnipotence, state neath his wing, leave all resultings, do the next thing. Looking to Jesus, ever serener, look, working or suffering, let this be your demeanor. In his dear presence, the rest of us calm, let the light of Christ's countenance be your psalm. Strong in his faithfulness, praise and sing, then, as he commands you, do the next thing. So what's the poem saying? So we shouldn't get caught up in next week or next month or next year. We, we get so focused at times on the future that we become paralyzed about today. So as Christians, we need to trust the king has us in his hands, and sometimes that greatest act of faith is just going through and trusting it to God. I know I've said this before, and I don't remember if I said it on the call or not, but when Reed was born, we were Janelle and I were struggling. We didn't feel like it was going well. Um, there were broken dreams. I'll just be honest. Um, it hurt. Um, I had two, two a nephew and a niece that were born and were perfect, and I remember the thought going through my mind that this is not fair. Um, so my dream was going to be different than everyone else. The harsh reality of life, of what it was going to look like with dietary and lifestyle restrictions, and yet, kind of through the strength of God, I shouldn't say kind of, yet through the strength of God, we kept going, and I can't, I can't count or even remember the number of comments that have been made, is how did you do this? And at one point, it used to make me really uncomfortable, but we wanted to respond by saying we didn't, God did it. Uh, one of the doctors then, who was a distant cousin and not a believer, um, later came to know the Lord, um, one of the comments he made to this, that he made to me was that the staff kept asking is, what is wrong with these people? They have a kid that's got all these problems and they just they just accept it. And had we done something special? No, I know we weren't because I know how we were struggling. I know how I was questioning God and didn't think it was working. Um, in, in fact, this, the survival mode was such that years later, we ended up having to go through some marriage counseling just to deal with the trauma from, from his birth. Um, so it wasn't a light thing. Um, but through it all, we can testify God was there and we kept plodding along. And, and I would say that from the comments and from what I've learned over the past years and, and the people we've interacted with, God's beauty shone through the things that didn't look like it was going well. Kind of like with Jairus and his daughter, Jesus shone through all of that. And now 19, later, 19 years later, we're back in the hospital doing the same thing, got same set of fears and struggles, and, and we're, we're going through it again. So I don't have it figured out. Obviously, God felt he needed to teach me again, so we're doing it again. But what do we do? The goal, I think, is to show forth the love of God by trusting the details to him and then just do the next thing. I'm kind of like yesterday when we get sort of got that punch in the gut that, hey, you're going back to surgery. Is just take a deep breath, ask for prayers, and we came out of it, and he's doing fine. He's sitting up eating today. So there, there's coming a day when these temporal things are gonna, not going to matter anymore. They're going to go away. Um, I think of a couple brothers in our church that are dying of cancer as we speak. And while there's sadness and a little worry about what the end looks like for them, they're doing the next thing. They're living out the gospel by glorifying God for what he's done. And I think that's what our expectation is. So as we come to prayer today, I'd just like to encourage us a little bit. Um, let God have whatever it is you're struggling, what you're holding on to. 
I think if you've read the post over the past couple weeks, you've seen that I've tried to hold on to things a lot longer than I should have. So I just encourage you, don't, don't be like me. Don't use me as the example. Um, use me as a reason not to, to do that. But give it to God. Let's trust Jesus, even if we don't know how it's going to work out. Um, because as one of our pastors keeps telling me, God's got this. And he's going to do us good.